You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Good morning, you guys. Glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. If you're new, we're glad you're here. If you're not new, we're also glad you're here. Thanks for, uh, for being with us in Midtown today. Uh, I want to start our time this morning uh, with a little contest. Those of you that know me in the room know I'm just a little bit competitive. I love games that have winners and losers, and so I have one of those games for us today. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to have my friend Luke, who's running the slides. By the way, Luke showed up early to serve behind the scenes today. He's using his time and energy to do that. So give it up for Luke for serving for us and for, yeah, yeah, nice. And truly for all the people that serve here at Midtown, guys, none of the stuff that we do outside of this community to love our neighbors, none of the stuff we do to love one another here can happen unless all of us are a part of it, unless all of us are serving and giving of our life. Uh, So know that that's true. That's a thank you to everyone who serves and also an invitation for you to be a part of that as well. Okay, so in a moment, Luke, he's going to display an image on the screen. As soon as that image goes up, your job in the room is to blurt out as quickly as you can who you think the creator of that image is. Make sense? And just so there's real stakes here and real competition, because I like stakes and competition, I will buy a coffee and a snack, or if you're a tea fan, whatever it is, for whoever gets it right. So I'm going to be standing up here listening. You're going to blurt it out as quickly as you can. It's a treat on me for the first person to get it right. You guys with me? All right. So with a coffee and snack on the line, Luke, put the image up. Oh, it was close between Chris and Sarah. But the strength with which Sarah said it, I think, (laughs) she crossed the finish line still strong. So, Sarah, congratulations. You are the winner today. I owe you a coffee and a snack. And uh, everyone else in the room, you guys are losers. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You are beloved children of God, but you did lose in that game. You did lose. Um, But I have a follow-up question, some redemption opportunity. No prize for this one, but you can flex your trivia knowledge here. Anyone know the name of this painting? Say it again. Ah, close. The Creation of Adam. So you had had it. You were on the right track. The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. This has become known as one of the most famous paintings in Western history. It's inspired countless other works of art. In fact, uh, the recent uh, worldwide sensation, Barbie, we went and saw this a few weeks back. Barbie directly referenced this painting. There's a scene where Barbie reaches out to her creator as Adam is reaching out to God here. So this image, it has staying power for us, even in our billion-dollar movies today. Uh, But what many people don't know about the creation of Adam is that it's actually part of a much bigger canvas. It's not its own independent painting. It's a small fragment of a much more expansive work of art. And I've actually got the larger, more complete painting here. It's in Vatican City. It's become famous to many of us in the Sistine Chapel. Not the Sixtine Chapel. That's definitely what I thought as a kid. The Sistine, not Sixtine. And this painting, it's a massive and intricate piece. It took Michelangelo over four years to finish this sucker. He was going at it. And the creation of Adam is right here. There's a little, you see a red arrow there. That's the creation of Adam. A tiny, tiny portion of a much larger painting. And the image itself, it's beautiful, it's striking, but its real magnificence comes into view when you see it in the context of the whole. The creation of Adam is significant and important on its own precisely because it contributes to a grander and sweeping and marvelous tale that's being told across the whole sea land. 
And I think that aspect of Michelangelo's work has something to teach us about our own lives today when it comes to significance and importance. See, we live in a world right now that is constantly striving after those sorts of things. We want our lives to matter deeply, to count in some way. There's a psychologist and philosopher, John Dewey, who put it this way. He said, the deepest urge in human nature is the desire to feel important. We all long for the years that we have, however many they might be, to matter. And every day, because of that desire in us, we are being told and sold messages of how we can make our life significant or important. For instance, we're sold the message that we can make our life significant and important by consuming the right things. Have you guys ever noticed that every advertisement you ever watch, every person in the ad looks like they're really significant and important? They're beautiful and striking. Maybe it's a celebrity who actually feels that way, but maybe it's just someone who's surrounded by friends and always smiling and seems to have their life together. Significance is coming to them because they're riding a Peloton or because they're using a certain laundry detergent, right? Like that's what the marketers are trying to get us to. You can be like this person, significant and important because of something you consume or buy. There's one company in particular that was actually really explicit about this with an ad campaign. They had a character that many of you have heard of. You guys remember this guy? The most interesting man in the world, yeah? They'd have this great narrator voice over the commercials. They'd say things like, he's the life of parties he's never attended. <laughs> if he were to mail a letter without postage, it would still get there. When he drives a new car off the lot, it increases in value. <laughs> he lives vicariously through himself. He is the most interesting man in the world. Do you guys remember those? And all of those lines would run. Oh, you don't remember that? Oh, Lauren, you need to go on YouTube and watch these. They're great. <laughs> great stuff. Those lines would run over footage of this Latin man who's striking and handsome. He'd be uh, sewing his shoulder up and making jokes to people while he did. Or he'd be cliff diving in some rural place. Or he'd be speaking languages to people in rural jungles that he shouldn't otherwise know. He was just really interesting, really significant, really important. And then in every ad, he'd look into the camera at the end, he'd say, I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dos Equis. Stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> now, humorous, hilarious, I love those ads, but do you see what they're selling you subtly in that humor? They're connecting significance, importance, interestingness to drinking a beer. If you drink this beer, you'll become like this sort of person. We're sold that message. Over and over in our lives, we're told significance can come when we consume the right things, and it's not working. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, and yet we also are showing record rates of hopelessness. Our lives don't seem significant. They don't seem to matter to us. And if it's not that message, we're sold other messages. Messages like, you can make your life significant by living out some ethereal American dream. So finish school, and then get a job that you're passionate about that makes a difference in the world, but also that same job has to have reasonable hours and good health care and nice paid time off. And then find a husband or wife that is gorgeous but thinks you are the most important thing in the world. And then have 2.5 kids with that person. And then get a convertible and a golden retriever and a house with a picket fence. Your life can be significant. Just obtain that elusive American dream. And it's not working either, friends. According to numerous recent studies, Americans who reach a level of wealth that is considered upper middle class, the American dream, those people suffer from depression and anxiety at significantly higher rates than the rest of the population. People who have gotten the American dream are getting there and saying, it's an illusion. It's not working. It's not giving me significance. And other messages keep coming to us. We're sold the message that you can make your life significant by becoming famous or popular or getting the right affirmation of the crowds or the person that you like. 
The internet, for many of us, has become a ticket to immortality. We post selfies, we write songs, we filter our world travels, we say something inspiring in a little quote that's often misattributed to Martin Luther King, but whatever. We post about our relationship, we chase after the love of a guy or girl. And we do all of that because we're injecting likes and shares and retweets into our veins because they make us feel significant. And once again, we're left miserable afterwards. Increased internet usage is directly linked to increased risk of depression, codependency, loneliness, and hopelessness. Friends, the significance and importance that you're longing for, that we're all longing for, that's a good desire. It's a God-given desire. But we will never find significance by consuming more. We will never find significance by chasing down some ethereal American dream. We'll never find it through the affirmation of a person or the crowds. Our desire for significance will only ever be satiated when we see our life as it truthfully is, a sort of creation of Adam in a grand Sistine Chapel. That is, we need to see our life as small but beautiful and magnificent and part of a grand cosmic story of redemption and restoration. Each and every one of us is a painting to be lived out, a marvelous work of art, intricate down to the smallest detail. And we're intentionally designed and placed where we are as we are. But each and every one of our paintings gains significance because it's part of God's grander story, part of his Sistine Chapel of salvation. And so the scriptures are telling us over and over and over, we are infinitesimally infinite, that we are given significance in our smallness, and that's one of the main reasons we've created this teaching series here at Midtown. We're calling it uh, Character Matters, and we're actually exploring the book of 1 Samuel in our Old Testaments, and we're paying close attention as we read through it to the character, or lack thereof, shown by the people in the book. So figures like Hannah or Samuel, Saul or Jonathan or David. And in every instance, what we find, the repeated theme that we find is that the thing that matters most in our lives, the thing that gives us significance and importance in our lives, it's not constant striving after greatness. It's not constant consuming. It's commitment to deep, healthy character in the seemingly insignificant parts of our lives. Over and over again in 1 Samuel, we hear stories of seemingly unremarkable people in seemingly unremarkable places who play a critical role in God's grand story of redemption. And today, we get to read about God's calling of a guy named Samuel. And when we meet Samuel in the story, he's a young boy. In many ways, he's the last person you would expect to play a significant role in the story. And it's the character that Samuel shows, living into his calling in a seemingly small and innocuous way in his life that leads to ultimately change the course of history forever. So if you have a Bible, friends, open it with me to the book of 1 Samuel. This is near the beginnings of your Bible, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3. We're going to be reading the whole chapter together. 1 Samuel 3, starting in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words will be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. 1 Samuel, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. And so he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. 
And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called to Samuel again a third time. And he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go and lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, See, I am about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel lay there until morning. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel, said, Samuel, my son. He said, here I am. Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Then he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And as Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a trustworthy prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we arrive at 1 Samuel 3 here in an age of spiritual silence, at least perceived silence. The text explicitly says it early on. It says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. That is, the spiritual lives of the people of Israel, and particularly in this place called Shiloh, They felt dry and desolate. The evidence of God's presence, love and justice and mercy seemed absent entirely. Go read the book of Judges if you want to see what this looks like. It was brutal in that day. And the text actually tells us that the primary culprit for much of that religious darkness and silence is the religious leaders. The religious people are the problem with the religion. See, Eli, who was the priestly minister at the time, had two sons who served as priests in the religious institution. His son's names were Hophni and Phinehas. And just a chapter before this, in chapter 2, the text gives us a really colorful word to describe them. Scoundrels. That's what it calls Hophni and Phinehas. Other English versions use words like wicked men, useless men, worthless men. So exactly the sort of character you want people to write about you in a book, right? Someday. And their vileness is made clear in a few different ways. First, Hophni and Phinehas were deeply greedy. In the religious practice of that day, there were different sorts of offerings that people would bring to the temple, to the tabernacle. And sometimes those offerings had different purposes. Sometimes they were about expressing gratitude to God. Sometimes they were about forgiveness of sins. Sometimes they had to do with supporting the tabernacle and the priests. And sometimes these offerings were actually meant to be shared between the priests and the people. They were called fellowship offerings. And there were specific portions dedicated to the priests and to the people, and then to God. They had barbecues. That's what was happening. Everyone got their portion that was fair. But in the case of Hophni and Phinehas, they ignored all the rules about what everyone should get, and they took more than they ought to. 
They would violently coerce people into giving more than they should, or they'd take more than was fairly allotted to them. There's an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann who says this humorously or describes this humorously. He says that Hophni and Phinehas had forks for the offerings that were bigger than regulation, taking more than they should. And so they were greedy with the things that people were bringing to the tabernacle, but it didn't stop there. They also were taking advantage of women who volunteered in the temple at that time, who served there. They leveraged their power as priests to coerce female volunteers into sleeping with them. And so spiritual abuse informed physical abuse, and there was no one, including Eli, who was holding them accountable. The very people who claimed that they were doing their work out of love of God and love of others were actually in it for themselves. The very people who were supposed to be the bridge, the connectors to God and the people, they were actively contributing to moral and spiritual decay in their people. So it's no wonder the word of the Lord felt rare. Because distance from God in the leaders begets distance in God from others. And that sort of corruption never really happens in our day, right? I mean, our religious leaders are always above board. Now, this truth of Hophni and Phineas's behaviors, it's repeated over and over in our time today. Embezzlement is a common practice today in the American church. There's a recent study of one particular denomination that found that one in six pastors embezzled money from their church in some form. And those are the people that found out, right? There are many people hiding as well. And sometimes ministers can get creative with this. There's a story of one pastor who used $200,000 worth of offerings from the church to purchase more copies of a book he wrote so that it could get on the New York Times bestseller list. And he's still pastoring a church. And it seems like every year there's a new list of abuse scandals that have either been hidden or actively perpetuated by religious leaders. As it turns out, Hophni and Phineas, this tension of religiosity becoming corrupt, was just repeated in our time. And they become so common that people who are outside the church often see corruption as synonymous with Christianity. That's how people see Christians. There's a guy named David Kinneman who explored this reality in depth in a book he wrote called Unchristian. He referenced a bunch of polls of people ages 16 to 29 in the book. And he asked about their perception of Christian religious spaces. These are some of the stats. Only 16% of people polled in that age group said they had a good impression of Christianity. And that number plummeted to 3% when you talked about evangelicals. 85% of those polled use the word hypocritical to describe Christianity. And so the result in our day today is similar to what it was in 1 Samuel. For many people today, it seems like the life and the love and the word of God is gone. Nowhere to be found. And people are leaving the church behind altogether. In the last 25 years alone, more people have left the church in America than people who entered the church during the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham revivals combined. For many of us, it seems like the word and character and life of the Lord is rare in our own time. But friends, here's the remarkable thing about this passage. That sort of spiritual silence is only the first verse. This religious and spiritual corruption is only the beginning of the story, not the end of it. See, it's precisely into this season of spiritual darkness and silence that God speaks most powerfully. Corrupt religion can't stand in the way of God's truth and life. Injustice and abuse can't stand in God's way of justice and healing. When it feels like God is most absent, it's precisely then that God calls all of us into new life. 
It's always in the dark of our ordinary lives that God calls us into new beginnings. That's always how it works. That's how God works. Remember the stories from the scriptures. It was in the dark of a barren family and idolatrous culture that God called a simple man named Abram and sparked a new beginning for all of history. It was in the dark of oppression and slavery that God called an ordinary shepherd named Moses and sparked a new liberated beginning for Israel. It was in the dark of shallow and deluded faith that God called the simple desert fathers and mothers to embody the kingdom in a new way. It was in the dark of the lackluster 13th century church that God called an ordinary boy named Francis to spark a new beginning by rebuilding the church and its care for the poor and the marginalized. It was in the dark of the church's complicity in Nazi Germany that God called an ordinary pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer to be a force of countercultural commitment to Jesus. And it was in the dark of American and Christian segregation and racism that God called an ordinary minister named Martin Luther King Jr. towards the new beginning of justice. God always speaks when it's darkest. God always speaks when the institution has been corrupt. He brings new life in those places. And I believe that God is doing that for each and every one of us ordinary people today, right now, in our space, in our time. I believe God is calling us to participate in new beginnings for the poor and the needy in this neighborhood through Midtown. I believe God is calling the skeptic and the deconstructor and the wanderer in all of us towards a new beginning of faith and hope. I believe God is calling us to new beginnings of hope in our grief, new beginnings of forgiveness in our brokenness, new beginnings of passion in our apathy. He's calling all of us towards that right now in this room because that's who God is, light in the darkness, in the silence. But in order for any of those new beginnings to happen, we've got to be people who hear it and respond. We need to become people like Samuel, who live into the calling that God has prompted in us. And so I think there's a few things we can learn from Samuel in our own time today, how we can become people who embody this new beginning from God in our own time. We learn that Samuel lives into his calling by doing three things. He's attentive, he spends time in the right places, and he's willing to be shaped by God. He's attentive, He spends time in the right places, and he's willing to be shaped by God. First, Samuel is attentive. And that's made obvious to us actually by a contrast in the story. You may have noticed this subtle detail. Early on in the story, Eli, who's the priest, Samuel's just a boy serving, Eli's the priest, and the text says that Eli's eyesight began to grow dim. Did you catch that? And at first, that seems like a throwaway detail, right? Oh, he's just getting old. But remember, there's no throwaway details in the Bible. These ancient authors put every word in there intentionally. And what we find is that over and over again, Eli's lack of physical sight is directly connected to his lack of spiritual insight. He's missing God all over the place. Remember in chapter one, Hannah comes to the temple and Eli sees her praying but confuses her. He doesn't have good sight. He's not able to see that she's praying and so he accuses her of being drunk. He doesn't realize what God is doing in and through Hannah and he has to walk back that statement. And he's overlooking all the corruption in his sons. He's not able to see what it's doing to the temple, what it's doing to the society. And now, even in this story, he's unable to attend to the lamp of God. That's why Samuel has to do it. The priest's job was to make sure that the lamp of God, which symbolized God's presence looking over the people of Israel, they had to keep that thing lit all the time. But he can't see it, so he has to have Samuel do it. He has lack of spiritual insight. It's connected to his physical sight. He's remarkably inattentive to the work and voice and presence of God. And look at how Samuel is contrasted to Eli. He's lying down in the temple, intentionally near those lights, spending time near to God. And then when God speaks, he springs out of bed, not once, not twice, not even three times, but a fourth time. And so the contrast between Eli and Samuel is hitting us over the head with an important truth. Samuel 
is able to hear the call of God because he's attentive to the voice of God in his life in ways that others around him might be missing. His eyes, his ears, his heart are on the lookout for where God might be speaking and leading him. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we're often more like Eli than we are like Samuel. We often don't approach our days with this sort of attentiveness of what God is doing in and through us. Instead, we're consumed with activity or work that gives us tunnel vision to our neighbors in some way. Or we're distracted by the pull of our device. Or our mind is just constantly stewing over fear or anxiety about a problem in our day. We constantly fill our minds and hearts and bodies with busyness or anxiety or whatever else, and then our eyes become dim to what God is doing. So often we can feel like God is silent in our lives, but maybe it's not God who's inattentive to us. Maybe we become inattentive to God. There's a story that a pastor friend of mine tells that I think captures this well and humorously. He tells of a man who was having difficulty communicating with his wife, and so this man concluded that she was becoming hard of hearing, and so he decided to conduct a test without her knowing it. One evening, he sat in a chair on the far side of the room, and her back was to him so that she couldn't see him. And very quietly, he whispered, can you hear me? No response. So he moved a little closer. He asked again, can you hear me now? Still no reply. Quietly, he edged closer and whispered the same words, but still no answer. And finally, he moved in right behind her chair and said, can you hear me now? And to his surprise and chagrin, she responded with irritation, for the fourth time, yes. (laughs) Somebody else's hearing was failing. Friends, oftentimes it's not that God isn't calling. It's that we haven't genuinely devoted space to listen. I like how Oswald Chambers puts it in his devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest. He says, whether I hear God's call or not depends on the condition of my ears. And exactly what I hear depends on my spiritual attitude. And it's also worth noting in this passage, even when Samuel is attentive to God's call, it takes some time for things to become clear to him. Did you notice that? It wasn't instantaneous. He actually starts off confused about where this voice is coming from. It's not obvious to him that God is calling him to do something or to be something. The calling takes time to understand. That's a crucial detail in this story. You guys, God's calling to us isn't fast food. It's not a drive-through. Spiritual depth and life with God takes ongoing, regular engagement because that's how relationships work. You don't get to know the tendencies or the passions or the tone or the desires of someone on a first date, by and large. That takes a lifetime to fully cultivate. I'm still figuring out my wife. My wife's still figuring out me. It takes time investment over the long haul. See, the point of the story isn't that Samuel has some special ability. It's that he practices ongoing availability. Over and over again, he returns to being attentive to God, and over time, that leads him to more clarity. And that flies right in the face of much of our American Christian subculture. We live in a time of shortcut spirituality. We want one inspiring Bible verse, ideally one that we could write in some beautiful cursive font and hang up on our wall. We want one piece of marital advice or one marital retreat that will solve our relationship. We want one inspiring or stirring sermon or song. And we approach church that way. Think about how we often evaluate our church experiences. There's two questions we often ask when we leave. Did I like the sermon? Did I like the music? That is, did I like the consumeristic production that gave me the shortcut spirituality I was looking for? Did I feel good because of what I heard? Notice we don't necessarily ask questions like, is this community going to shape me in the long haul into someone who's attentive to God? Or is this community going to encourage and support me in a way that makes me consistently available to God? 
You guys, if we want to become people who experience a life of deep richness, a life that lives out the calling of God in our lives, it can only happen when we build intentional rhythms of being attentive to him. We need times of listening prayer. We need regular time away from distractions and devices. We need regular time where our hearts and our minds can be shaped by who God is. So that's the first thing we learn from Samuel. He's attentive. But it doesn't stop there. We also learn that Samuel is spending time in the right places. Notice the text goes to great lengths to talk about his location throughout. He's in the temple. He's near the Ark of the Covenant, sign of God's commitment to the people. He's keeping the attention on the lampstand, this sign of God's presence near to him. Over and over again, the author is reminding us that Samuel is drawing near to reminders of God's character and faithfulness. He's immersing himself in the places and spaces where he can remember God, remember what God has done, remember what God is doing. And even more than that, he shows a willingness to trust in Eli. See, Eli is a really interesting character. He's compelling. He lacks much of the spiritual foresight he once had, but he still has wisdom. Eventually, he realizes, oh, God's calling Samuel. And so he gives the instructions to Samuel. Even Eli, who's the one who's blind, he's done this long enough that his tradition, his experience can help Samuel. It's actually a really important tension in this story that Eli represents. On one hand, he's passive and a fading relic of hypocritical religion. But on another hand, he actually provides an insight that is born from tradition, born from experience. And Samuel doesn't get his call clearly unless he learns from that tradition and experience. So even though the story recognizes that tradition or community or experience can become corrupt, it also reminds us that they're essential to us. If we want to fully grasp who God is and who we are and what our calling is, we need those things. So in our lives today, as we seek to be more uh, deep in our understanding of God's calling, we need to involve ourselves in the right spaces, spend time in the right places. We're not islands unto ourselves. We need the scriptures. We need a community. We need stories of what God has done in others' lives, in the scriptures. And when we do that over and over in the long haul and we're attentive to those sorts of stories in the right spaces, well, then we'll eventually find ourselves attuned to the calling of God. We need to become attentive to spend time in the right spaces. And then also, finally, we need to become people who are willing to be shaped by God, not self-shaping. The phrase that Eli instructs Samuel to say in order to hear clearly is a compelling one, and one that I think we could get better at asking in our time. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We live in a world that is constantly telling us to pave our own path to chart our own way, to shape for ourselves who we are and what we'll become. We're self-determining people. And so often, when we're not careful, we treat calling in the same way. Calling is something that we self-define, like every other part of our American culture. There's a South Korean philosopher named Young Chul Han who wrote an entire book on how destructive this picture of self-made calling is. He referred to Americans as entrepreneurs of self. And he wrote that putting more and more pressure on the individual to be entirely self-defined will ultimately break them. And that's why we're seeing the decay of American society. He wrote it this way in his book, A Burnout Culture. He said, symptoms of depression and feelings of insecurity, inferiority, and fear of failure are the hallmarks of late modern society where people have become entrepreneurs of self. Being self-defining in our calling is not leading us to freedom. It's leading us to captivity. The picture of calling for the follower of God, as Samuel evidences here, is not being an entrepreneur of self. It is instead allowing God to define who we are. It's something that we come to discover from him, not self-determined. 
And that's based on one fundamental assumption. Our lives, friends, are inherently a response to God. We never make the first move. Samuel's life and calling are not his, at least not in the sense that he defines them and that it's God's job to fulfill what he wants. Instead, God's calling is something that he learns to receive and live into, which means he is willing to be shaped by God. He's not trying to coerce God into his picture of what he wants his life to look like. See, so often we enter into our picture of calling thinking that we have to we'll self-define it and that God should do what we want him to do to define our lives. We don't discover or receive it. We determine it. And it always starts, friends, real calling, not with self-determination, but with receiving and being willing to be shaped by God. And by the way, that doesn't mean that you aren't involved in any meaningful way. We are involved. Our context is involved. Our personality is involved. Our gifts are involved. But it starts with a posture of being shaped by God. And that also means that our personal feelings aren't always the best guides to understanding God's calling. In fact, oftentimes our calling leads us into stuff that don't, doesn't feel very good. I mean, look at the message that Samuel has to give Eli. He stayed awake all night. He couldn't sleep. Why? Because this is a hard message. He didn't feel good about it. His feelings would not have led him to speak this. It was God's calling that did. Guys, God's call to us isn't to comfort or ease or feel-good therapeutic spirituality. God's call is to redemption and restoration. And in a broken world, that sometimes means really hard stuff that won't feel good. So often, I hear folks talk about a certain feeling of peace, a certain feeling that they experience, and that's how they dictate whether God is calling them to something or not. But that's not a great criteria for Samuel, and that's not a great criteria for calls all throughout the scriptures. Remember Moses when he was called by God. What was his response? Nah, you got the wrong guy. I'm out. Because that sounds really hard. Freeing people from oppression to the greatest empire in our time? Yeah, I'm out. Find somebody else. He didn't feel good about that. God called him even when his feelings didn't align. Take Jesus himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, was he feeling great about his calling? No. It was hard. Because in a broken world, redemption and restoration cost something. There is tremendous life in God's calling. We see amazing things that Samuel does. But we also see that God is calling him into something that doesn't always feel good. Our feelings can be reliable at times, but they aren't the ultimate foundation upon which we understand God's call. We can't judge if God is calling us because of our emotions in a given moment. So in the story of Samuel, friends, we learn that we have to live into our calling by being attentive, by spending time in the right places, and by being willing to be shaped by God. And here's the kicker to Samuel's story. By living into his calling in this little story in 1 Samuel 3, this ordinary young man ultimately ends up playing a key role in the anointing of King David. And King David ends up playing a key role in the life of another king, Jesus. David is the lineage of Jesus. We don't get the redemption and restoration of Jesus without David, and we don't get David without Samuel being faithful in this really small, ordinary space. We don't get the Sistine Chapel without the creation of Adam. See, when we become people of character who live into God's calling, who say, speak for your servant is listening, what we find is that our small and beautiful and magnificent lives become a part of a grander story than we ever could have brought on our own. That's the radical paradox of Christianity, that ordinary people, ordinary circumstances become extraordinary contributions to God's healing and life. And so at Midtown, This week and moving forward, let's live into our calling. Let's become people starting today who are attentive 
to what God is doing in and around us. Let's become people who spend time in the right places, who listen well to our tradition and to one another, to the scriptures. And let's become people who are willing to be shaped by God because when we do that, it will transform the world. As St. Catherine of Siena put it, when we are called, when we are who we're called to be, we will set the world ablaze. Let's pray. Thanks.